Um, I have a topic uh, in mind to discuss tonight, but first I thought we could take a few minutes and just see if anyone had any questions about uh, meditation practice or uh, any Dharma questions. In your many years of practice and teaching, um, is there a single practice that you have noticed um, that you can recommend for letting go of the preoccupation with self? And I'm talking about somebody who has been doing it for a few years, and that's my big stumbling block. So it's not really immediate, early, but... Well, it happens that part of what I want to talk about tonight is around kind of some things around letting go. Um, That's, of course, a big question. Did everybody hear that about letting go of self? So that's really the core of the whole uh, Dharma. Um, What I would say is, and I'll, I don't know how any kind of letting go happens, truly, but I know that letting go can happen, but I don't know how. It's kind of mysterious, really. You know, how do you let go of anything? <laughs> but I think um, the short answer to that, I would say, is is that there are many pathways. Uh, you know, so, well, it's such a big question. So, classically in in vipassana practice, the whole idea is is that we de- as we develop some kind of uh, a little concentration, a little mindfulness, and we turn that awareness inward, we start to see more and more about just the truth of the whole nature of, of our own being. And the more we, the truth is seen, the less uh, there's a natural falling away of identification or clinging to false ideas of who we think we are. One of the images that I love is of if you're walking on a trail, and so you're going down the trail, and then you see a snake coiled up, you know, and you go, oh, a snake, and you jump back, and there's fear. And then you look closer and you see it's a coil of rope, right? And the fear disappears. Well, the first question actually is, where did the snake go? And the answer, of course, is the snake didn't go anywhere because there never was a snake. How did the letting go of the fear happen? Well, we saw that there was no snake there, and it just it just dropped away. Like we didn't have to do anything except just see clearly, right? So it's it's similarly as we um, I think there's a natural kind of non-clinging that happens when we start to really look closely at the nature of how uh, some how much of our own um, pain and suffering we create just around this idea of, of grasping and clinging. I'm not saying we create all of our suffering, right? but a lot of it's self-created in ways we don't even notice just by holding on you know, to things. Uh, probably you've heard these, this idea so much. You know, the Buddha summed up his whole Dharma teaching. He said he could sum it up in one sentence. 
nothing should be clung to as I, me, or mine. In other words, he was saying we shouldn't try to hold on to any external experiences and we shouldn't try to hold on to any fixed notions of who and what we think we are. That gets misunderstood often because people think that means, oh, I have to just disconnect from everything or I can't have my experience or I can't be involved in life or you know, I've got to kind of disassociate or, or any experience is wrong. And that's not what it's saying at all. Right? I mean, we're all here. We're human beings. We're in the world. I don't see any monks or nuns here, right? I don't think. So we're all living our lives. And I don't think we're being asked to stop doing that. Some of you actually, um, it gives me a chance to plug a little class we're going to have here that I'm going to teach on April 1st. Some of you may have seen the notice. It's in the Sati Center brochure about Buddhist Buddha's teachings, uh, ethical teachings for lay people. He gave many, many teachings to lay people, and there's four suttas in particular that really focus on his teachings to lay people. And and in early Buddhism, there are you know there are plenty of stories of lay people becoming deeply um, awakened and liberated. And so uh, we're going to focus in on these particular teachings to lay people. I have never found a place, there could be some place that I've missed, but I don't think so. I've never found a place where the Buddha told lay people, you should leave home, go, go live in a cave somewhere. It's worth noting that he abandoned his own wife and child, but um, that's, a, that's a different story. But he never recommended that to anyone that I'm aware of. Certainly for those who were drawn, they could leave home and come to the monastic order. But when he gave teachings after his enlightenment to uh, lay men, lay women, family people, people in the community, that's not how he taught. He was just teaching practices that we can all, and that we all are, hopefully, uh, incorporating in our lives that can lead us to, to uh, deep places of uh, whatever term you want to use, liberation, freedom, well-being. So um, I don't think we're being asked to throw everything away. The way I look at it is uh, we're just being asked to add in a piece. You just add in one little piece. It's, not, it's nothing. And that little piece is rather than our sole strategy for being okay to run after certain experiences over and over and over and over and pushing away a whole other range of experiences over and over and over. Which, by the way, we're, we're not, probably not going to stop doing that. We're human beings. Right? I noticed, I'll come back to this for a second. I noticed I was up here where the Zafus are. You know, this is deeply ingrained in us to try and create better circumstances in our lives. I spent about two minutes up, literally, I was up here for about two minutes to get just the right one. I was squeezing them all. And uh, this one, I want to get two things. One is the right height. And also, I don't want it to be too firm or too mushy. I just am very particular on how I like to sit here. Otherwise, this, my butt kind of falls asleep. If I get the right one, I'm just quite comfortable. Right. So I was actually noticing I was doing, I was kind of laughing at myself. You know, I'm maximizing my pleasant, minimizing my unpleasant. When I get the right software, I can sit quite comfortably. Had the wrong one, I have to deal with unpleasant. Well, I don't want to do that. So it's deeply wired into us right, to increase 
more pleasantness in our lives and to decrease unpleasant. That's just part of being a living being. Right? It's just part of how it is. So, I don't know if we're going to stop doing that as living beings completely, right? And I don't know if we have to do that, but if that's our sole strategy, if that's the only way we know how to play this game, we're in trouble. Because while we go through this process of creating our life how we want it to be and setting up the circumstances just right and having whatever it is for each of us will be different, our jobs, our careers, or our families, or whatever that is for each of us, you know, sometimes you'll get what you want and then there's no problem. And sometimes you're not going to get what you want or you're going to get what you really don't want. So we're just adding in a piece which is um, while we're engaged in the midst of our lives, what do we do with what we actually get moment to moment? In other words, despite our best efforts to make life look a certain way, and then it, it, which is this, and then what it actually looks like is this. So it's not a judgment about us if we aren't able to find a way of being in relationship with whatever experience we're getting moment by moment. It's just an acknowledgement of the way things work. The way things work are is that uh, life is just a constant changing flow of experiences, much more out of control than we realize often. Part of what we start to realize through the meditation practice is just how out of control it is. We start to see that, yeah, we can set up the circumstances to be, you know, in our lives in certain ways, but you can't control it. Like if you came here tonight and said, all right, I'm going to really meditate. I'm coming here. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to get concentrated. And I'm going to be peaceful and it's going to be kind of blissful and everything. Right? Your intention and your effort is only one of many conditioning factors that's required to make that happen. And if other conditioning and supportive factors aren't there, like for example, if you didn't have enough food or you didn't sleep well or if just before you came here your spouse yelled at you and now your mind's stirring around about that or whatever happened. You know, you had a fender bender 45 minutes ago. Well, despite your best efforts, you're not going to get very concentrated. That's just an example of, of, of how we can see that you know, things aren't totally within our control. As we start to see that more, one of two things can happen. We can freak out and get panicky, right? And we can feel really insecure. So in other words, we haven't, we're still clinging. But, but as we start to work a little bit by little bit, you know, we don't start with the biggest things and we practice and learn how to be more present with an equanimous heart and mind in the midst of ever more and more experience. This is why it's a practice, it's a training. And we learn over time, over the days, the months and the years, then it opens up wider and wider till we can rest quite at ease and peace. And a real sense of well-being and that inner peace that people, that's the the cliche around meditation, right? Go meditate to get inner peace. 
That's what we're talking about. It's a place that can be very joyful too. That's not, and this is the piece we're adding in, it's so that it's not only about what's the nature of the experience, but also what's our relationship with whatever experience we're actually getting. That's the key. So to the extent we can find that place that's not grasping, that's not clinging, that's resting at ease, that's not pushing away, that's not grab, grabbing it tightly towards us, but just you know, um, flowing it kind of more in harmony with things, to the extent we're able to do that, we're going to suffer less. And that clinging and identification is not only towards our ex- external experience, and this gets back, I, I realize this is getting to be quite, a, to answer your question, it's kind of turning into a Dharma talk here, um, but uh, it's also about fixed notions of who and what we think we are. Right? So we all have some, you know, if you ask anybody, you know, who are you? Well, I, I'm me. I know who I am, I'm me. Well, and that's, you know, that's true whatever that me is. And it's worth questioning and looking and kind of delving a little deeper in to see, well, what's the nature of this me that I think I am? Right? And as we start to look a little uh, deeper, um, what is it that we see? We see, okay, there's a body, what's, you know, there's a mind, well, what's the mind? And we start to see more and more as we peel away the layers that it's not some fixed, concretized thing. And so, to the extent we're identified with some fixed sense of who we think we are, it's either we're either suffering or it's a setup for potential future suffering. So, for example, if we're identified with the body, you know, well, what's going to happen to the body, right? This gets talked about every other Dharma talk you ever hear, right? Old age, sickness, death, right? And I look around here, so I'm 53, and I see some of you young whippersnappers here, and I've got a few years on you, and then I see some of you got a few years on me, so I'm kind of just in the middle range here, it looks like. You know, my mother, I was complaining, my mother's um, uh, just turned 80, and I was complaining about her about something about as I've gotten old and I, I realized one day what just I don't know what just kind of struck me looking in the mirror and I, I looked in the mirror and it's not that I didn't know I was no longer young or anything, but I looked in the mirror and somehow the fact of where did my youth go just struck me. And I see this face looking back. Oh, I know what did it. It's because um, I got my driver's license renewed recently. <laughs> no, but it was even worse because um, the for some reason, you know, I think it's, is it every five years they renew it? Something like that. And for the last three times, that's 15 years worth, they didn't, I didn't have to go in and get a new picture. They just kept, I guess they had it digitized, they kept renewing it. So that was my picture 15 years back. And so just this last time, it happened just this last fall, I had to go get in a new picture. So I had to go and get a new picture. And Oh my God. That's, I forgot, that's what did it. I went, where did my youth go? I don't know, but it's gone. So I was complaining about this to my mother. She just laughed at me. <laughs> she said, honey, you ain't getting any sympathy from me, you know, because she's... So. And I look at her another 28 years uh, 
or whatever it is, 53, 63, yeah, 27 years older than I am. 27 years, not that long. You know, I look what 80 looks like. Um, of course, that won't be me because I eat plenty of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and I do yoga and I meditate, stress reduction. I don't smoke and I don't drink. I exercise. Uh, my, I have a good, you know, everything you could think of, I probably do. And you know what? Still, I wake up. Some, like this morning, I woke like for no apparent reason. Like my back just hurts. Never used to do that. And there's this place in my shoulder. Now I, used, I, I work out at the gym and, and I do weights, right? I've done it for a lot of years. I'm not a bodybuilder or anything, but just you know to exercise. You know, built up. And so I notice now there's this, you know, something's just twinging, twinging in my shoulder, right? So my point is, if I'm clinging to some fixed way I think the body's going to be, which we, I think we probably all do, right? I don't think it's... I don't know about you, but, you know... Well, I'll see. You know, some of you may want to comment who may be a little ahead of me in the, down the further road on, uh, who've developed more wisdom around this than I have. To the extent we identify and cling with the body, we're going to suffer. And there's a famous quote from Ramana Maharshi who said, seeking happiness by identifying with the body is like uh, crossing, trying to cross uh, a river or stream on the back of a crocodile. The idea is the back of a crocodile is not a good vehicle for crossing a stream or river. Clinging and identifying with the body is not a good vehicle for attaining happiness. Right? We don't want to, we don't have to deny the body. Matter of fact, that was the uh, great realization of the Buddha. You know, if you ever see those statues of the Buddha when he's sitting and his, excuse me, his body looks like a skeleton, that's the ascetic Buddha after he left home, uh, uh, what was he, at 29 years old, and he was, uh, had lived in this opulence, and he saw, okay, overindulgence and sense pleasures isn't going to solve my problem. He went to the other extreme mortification of the body, all these intents. When you see the, read the accounts of what he did, I mean, he almost died. So that's what the stat- statue is. That's the ascetic Buddha. He realized, okay, that's not it either. And there he found the middle way, which was, you know, we want to care for the body and not deny the body, but we just don't want to get over, you know, lost in thinking that that's going to do it for us. Now, it, we also should say that the Buddha... Um, even what he called the middle way, I mean, let's face it, he was still a world-renouncing ascetic. I don't think there's any way to get around it. But he's still pointing to this middle way where we care for ourselves. We take care of ourselves. You know, it'd be silly just to stop exercising or eating. Some of you, right? Some of you may not exercise, but whatever it is we do to care for ourselves, right? That would be silly. It wouldn't serve us very well. But as we start to reflect on these things, and that's what the whole Dharma practice is, hopefully we gain a little more wisdom about, you know, I don't know what's ultimately possible as far as uh, letting go of identification of clinging to the body, but certainly to the extent we can soften the grip of that a little bit, we're able a little more to flow with the inevitable ups and downs and changes that come. And so it's not just with the body, it's everything that we identify with as self is that way. If I think... I'm this fixed thing. Well, if I think it's really a great thing, maybe that's all right, you know. I'm really great. If I don't think that fixed idea of myself is uh, so good, boy, that's a lot of suffering.
I, I know a lot about that because um, I've dealt in my younger years. And um, matter of fact, I've just been doing some studying. I know there's probably some therapists here, or psychologists. I've been, I'm not a therapist, but I've been doing a little study about child development and some of the theories of character development, the different woundings that can happen and, uh, and how that can create certain strategies in people and everything. And, and it was very interesting to see, you know, some of the reflect on some of my own early, I call it wounding, but some of the places that are painful in me. And I know what it's like to have a negative view of oneself or what we might call poor self-esteem or, and really suffer around that a lot. There's a lot of suffering around that. You know, I'm no good. Nobody would love me. You know, that's a real concretized, fixed sense of who we think we are. Sometimes in... Um, uh, Western psychology, there's this idea that in order to, and, and as it interfaces with Buddhism, in, they'll say things like, some of you may have heard this, in order to realize no self, first you've got to get a healthy, healthy, sense of, healthy sense of self. In other words, to do this work sometimes, we have to heal up some of the hurt places so that we can then have some letting go. If we do some, try to do that letting go when we don't have a good sense of self, it can turn into sort of a disassociation or pushing away or an aversion to ourselves. It can get talked about like this a little bit. And sometimes people say, well, I don't quite get that. What does this mean? I'm supposed to get some kind of healthy sense of self in order to let go of the self. Right? The way I tend to think of it is um, you can do the same thing but just use a little different language. What does it mean to get a healthy sense of self? You know, reflect on that for a minute. I would propose it's some version of healing up places in us where we suffer, where we're, where we're not so well integrated with ourselves, or there's been some kind of wounding or scarring, or there's just d- difficult places in us. Who knows, maybe something happened in our lives or our childhood, or we came into, were born with it, who knows, right? Those are areas when at, where actually we tend to have the most identification, just like the example I just used for myself. I know what it's like to feel like, you know, just the, I, even the way I'm doing, contracting my body, just the sense of just not being okay in some profound sense, that if anybody really knew and saw me, no one would love me. I'm not, I just know that, that place. And I've done a lot of healing up in, over my life, so, you know, it's not that strong. But, you know, I don't know if you ever get to a point where your particular issue in life as if it was never there in the first place. So I know that place. Right? Now it's just an old friend. I know what I see. And it's like, oh yeah, there's... Yeah, yeah. I kind of pat it on the head and I thank it for sharing and I tell it it can now go sit over there. Right? When before it used to be like, that's me. Oh! And how painful that is, right? As that healed up, I didn't have to create this new thing that I call a healthy sense of self. I just have to heal up the places that are more wounded. Right? Where I tended to really get concretized and a more of a fixed sense of self. And to the place, to the extent that healed up, there was kind of a natural letting go around that. I wasn't so identified in a negative way with who and what I thought I was, who and what I thought I was. And then a letting go naturally happens into some. What is, what is, so what is it like if we aren't identified with the body? We're not identified so much. And, and I, I, oh, this weird, I'm not sure of the best way to say it when I say not identified. But there's some letting go of clinging around it. Because we are identified. I mean, we know who and what we are in the conventional sense, right? So there is that. But then there's another layer when we kind of can soften around it all. 
and just that place of it's really a lot of kindness to ourselves of allowing just the expression of our being to happen, whatever that is, without a lot of judgment and criticism and 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 really coming to be able to rest at ease with who we are. Yeah. One area I know in myself, for example, is I was just thinking about this because I went recently to my wife and my daughter to see, it wasn't that long ago, maybe went a month or so ago to see, uh, what was it, Brokeback Mountain. So um, went to see the movie and, you know, it definitely got to all of us and I was crying and we walked out and we're on the street and I said, I, I, I need to sob, uh, but I'm too embarrassed to do it here on the street. Come on, let's get to the car. And then we got to the car and I felt safe. And then I had, to, I just needed to kind of get it out. And so I had to sob, sob, sob for you know, a few seconds. And I was, okay, I was better. And I don't know, that's just how it worked. I tend to cry. You know, it's like I'm just, and I know that that's an area of, um, that I've always kind of felt embarrassed about. I just, about, you know, like a leaf falls off a tree. I'm practically, you know, going to cry about it. And, and so uh, I've just been embarrassed. I guess it's, I don't know, maybe a societal thing about how men are, I don't know. As I've, gotten older for whatever reason it's you know, it's kind of this isn't that profound of an example but I just can't think of a better example it's a place where you know what I don't try to I still have maybe a little embarrassment but really you know it's like I'm much more you know, you know you go in the movies and all the women are going to be crying and me and <laughs> you know it's just and a few other guys maybe that's just how it is and I'm much more peace about it <laughs> sorry for the stereotypes but I'm just uh, I'm just trying to make a point here. So, but my point is, is I'm much more at ease about it. I don't have so much suffering about it. It's just, you know, just let myself be what I am. So that's really the place where I think, uh, um, so this turned out to be the Dharma talk, I see, but, um, you know, uh, that place of, of, there's a place of ease of being in ourselves, I think that can come more and more. And I know for myself, I don't, I don't know what is, I'll just say one last thing and then we'll stop and open it up if anybody else wants to say anything. I don't know what the end of this path is. So I don't know what's ultimately possible. But I do know, and looking around, there's a few faces here that I know also know. I don't know all of you, but I know a few people here that this practice can be and is utterly transformative. The whole experience of being can just shift in a way. Uh, it's, I don't know how to, it's hard to talk about these things. Like what does life look like when, um, when the identification isn't so strong, yet you're still you, you don't stop being you, yet somehow there's the place that's just um, more clear, more open, more peaceful. You know, we're not in a struggle. It's that place that shifts from being the seeker to the place of knowing and being. It's not a bit. You know, it's you don't have to be you don't have to be an arahat to to really realize those fruits. And I know that there are people here that I recognize who've been practicing a long time. Right? It's like if you do anything. You know, if you if you want to learn to play the piano and you've never played, and I used to play when I was a kid, I don't now, you know, and I could start, I couldn't do anything, but I studied for maybe three years. And I got to a place where, you know, you practice and you do get some proficiency there. 
And sometimes I, the, like the fingers are going. I didn't even, it wasn't, I was, I don't even know how I was doing it. It's just, it's like typing, you know, how do you do that? It's just going. And I don't even know how I do it. Right? There's a real fruit from that practice that happens. And there's a real fruit from this practice that just happens. Right? It's not possible to do Dharma practice. Whatever that means, it doesn't have to be sitting in a fancy posture with your eyes closed. Whatever Dharma practice means for each of us, it's not possible to do that and not get real fruit of the practice. Not possible. It's not possible. As we direct our minds, those are the qualities that strengthen in us. It's just, right? And so the habitual, conditioned, tendencies of our minds can shift. And they do. And as that happens, I find that that's more, once again, I don't know ultimately what's possible, but to a great extent, that's getting right back to the original question of that place of, I even forgot exactly, <laughs> but of, was it about a letting go of, a, of an idea of self? or, or right, right? That those shifts can happen. You know, and sometimes it sneaks up on you. Gill has used an analogy. He may, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard it many times, but I thought it was great. He's, where is he from? It's, it's one of the Scandinavian countries, Norway. Yeah, yeah. So um, he was talking about how it's, uh, I've heard him say this many times, how it, it, it could get really super foggy and thick fog. And how he was, ta- he was actually was using the example of met, uh, retreat practice versus daily practice. And he was saying in retreat practice, you can drill really deep down. And I'm big on retreat practice, so I think that's really, you know, I'm not, I'm going to make a pitch for daily practice in a minute, but I think retreats are great. And you can really go very deep, very fast. He said it's like standing out in a rainstorm and you just get soaked. And then he says, but daily practice is kind of like, he said he, there would be times when he would walk across town in Norway and it would just be kind of wet in the air and you don't realize you're getting wet, wet, wet until you get across town and you're actually quite soaked. And you sometimes don't even realize it until something happens and you notice the shift. And, and he was talking about more like in daily practice. But I think that's a great analogy. Sometimes we don't actually notice the level of non-identification, the, the place of just the open place of, of, of aware, clear knowing and being in presence because um, it just becomes, it's not a big deal. Right? We don't notice these things that happen, but they're fruits it's just like you don't notice. Well, boy, I've been playing this piano and for three days I'm not any better, and I can't tell if I was if I'm any better at this piano than I was last week. But wow, you know, compared to last six months ago, I, I can see. So I think there is real fruit for everyone, literally everyone. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So let's take a little time. If anyone has any. Um, Did that answer your question? (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah, that's right. You're asking practice. Yeah. Um, I will say that my own practice has been what is the Pali term, and I'll say in English, is what's called anapanasati, which is mindfulness of in breathing and out breathing, or mindfulness of the breath. Um, everything is contained in there and if that's a practice that works um, I think all of the opening of the heart and the quieting of the mind and the clear seeing seeing is contained there 
And so that's been my practice for like 36 years. But I would say that what I guess the way I would tend to answer it is whatever it is that does a combination of three things helps us quiet the mind, opening the heart to love and compassion, and then bring some wisdom, which is a clear seeing. Anything that does those three things, uh, and there's many of those practices. So then I would say that um, it's a matter, and sometimes it's kind of trial and error to find, well, what is the practice that helps my heart open? I don't know. Oh, well, let me try this. Oh, that feels great. Let me try this. I don't know about that. It's experimenting. What's the meditation practice that works best for me? You know. And so well, maybe we have to experiment. But I would say just just make it simple. We're learning to uh, quiet our minds, open our hearts, and out of that non-reactive place or less reactive place, I should say, the clear seeing can come, and that's the wisdom. That's what I would say. That's my, the best I can think to say. They might want. Do, 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 do you want to use that? I think they want you to yeah, use the microphone. So I, I did the retreat in at Chaswa uh, Monastery in Burma recently. It was three weeks. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you have this notion about a uh, monastery being quiet and. Yeah. Uh, and I was looking forward to that quietness. 05 was a difficult year. And I, we, they built this brand new meditation hall there. It's just wonderful. So I'm getting ready to experience this quietly. And I think I recorded 40 different sounds that, that arose between barking dogs and the, the ferry boats on the Irrawaddy River. And, and so I was just trying to escape all of that to find some peace yeah. and I came right smack face to face with the very thing I was trying to get away from and in the morning there was this beautiful chanting by some solitary monk at four in the morning which I loved You know, that's one sound that I did enjoy yeah. and for some strange reason there was a chime that went off I don't know who was um, who was using this particular chime but it was the exact doorbell chime from our home here <laughs> so <laughs> it was a little mysterious and funny and you know and, and of course it was it was great fodder for the whole experience of you know first that whatever you resist persists and you can't run away from it all and, um, and so we had to work with that and I wasn't the only one affected by it yeah. And I shared it with the group because one of the things at home, I, I always thought if I became really successful, I could isolate myself and have true peace of mind, expensive neighborhood, you know. But the leaf blowers and the lawn mowers were driving me nuts because I work at home. And I noticed when I came back, those same things are here and yeah. they haven't bothered me. You know, it's been several weeks now. So it was, it was, that insight was particularly interesting. And I think uh, you mentioned about um, seeing your picture over a 15-year span. So one of the Dharma teachers was sharing about uh, her father-in-law, I mean her mother-in-law, who's 95 years old, 
and she was wrestling at night and getting up and making a lot of noise and they were wanting to know what was going on. So they found her in front of the mirror and she was standing there for five minutes because she forgot who she was. Mm -hmm. And she said, she turned to them and said, is this happened to everybody? And I think that was really very profound yeah. uh, experience of kind of where we're yeah. heading and um, yeah, that whole identification with the body and the mind and yeah, yeah. so forth. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just one moment. This man had his hand up. Hang on. I think they're going to. I think they're going to hand you a microphone. I think they want to get it on the tape. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just have a comment. Uh, I've been kind of playing into this enlightenment game for quite a while, and uh, and not really getting any skyrockets and Roman candles and yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, what I've noticed over the years is that, um, you know, looking at various spiritual teachers, uh, that everybody has a different version. Uh, you listen to Krishnamurti, for example, and he says, forget it, there's nothing you can do. There's a local realized being uh, named Adi Ashanti who comes by like twice, twice a month in Palo Alto, and he kind of basically says the same thing. He did Zen for years and years, and... Um, other spiritual teachers will say, do this kind of meditation or Kriya Yoga, this practice or that. Um, what I pretty much concluded is this, this, like maybe this cosmic magic wand and certain people get anointed with it. And pretty much the rest of us get kind of this cosmic two by four. <laughs> and we're kicked around and that's just the way it is so I've kind of given up on the whole thing I do the meditation and all that baloney but, but um, I, I just think it's just uh, a matter probably accumulation of lifetimes and finally we get to the, the top of the heap and then we get the, uh, the magic wand so I don't know if you have any comments on I my comments. Have, I have two comments. <laughs> first of all, I appreciate what you're saying, and um, I have two comments. First of all, I think that idea of finally giving up in the sense of not stopping to make effort, but sort of it, it's in that ease of, you know, if we can find the place where we can do our spiritual work, whatever that is, and if we really could... Let, also let go, another area of letting go of a clinging is to any idea or notion of getting anywhere and yet still working very hard, that's, there's that place, uh, uh, I think that's a magic place. I really do. Uh, so well, that's... Right. Yeah, but... Right, so I'm just using... It's the clumsiness of language. But what I'm saying is, is that... Um, you can't do non-doing, but non-doing can happen. So don't worry about that. It'll just make you go crazy. And um, so I would say, uh, you know, I'm just speaking in a different way than people like Adi Shanti or something like that. Uh, I'm saying um, um, I think there are things that you can make your own choice, but um, I'd say find some meditation practice, find some kind of practices and do it. Um, 
that's just you know, that's just me. And so you, people will do what will be attracted to what works for them, and they'll find their other way. The other thing I think that's important is um, that it's you know we all get some notions that we it can kind of it's a sort of a transference, or we project onto other people of what it is so and so's are realized or not realized, and everything. And the truth is. Um, we don't know what anyone else's experience is. And so I just want to say that um, it's not to bring anyone down or say anybody's not a realized being. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that at all or be disrespectful or anyone or anyway. But I just want to say that um, there is something in that if we get this idea like there's the top of the heap in multiple lifetimes, who knows? Maybe it works that way. I don't know. Um, and for the rest of us, we kind of struggle along. And I think to the extent that, that we kind of let go of overstriving, that that attitude can actually serve us. Because then in that letting go of overstriving, but still be on our path, that, that can help us. At the same time, I think sometimes we can sell ourselves short because um, uh, I just want to... And you didn't say this, so I might be kind of making up a little. Uh, this may not be accurate for you, but some notions we have about what awakening is. And I want to say that uh, I think that, that, that it is possible, literally, for each of us to come to really a lot of uh, freedom in our lives. I won't use the word awakening or realize. Some of these words get kind of loaded, but I'll just say that um, that you know it doesn't have to be way out there. You know, if we use words which you did not use this word, but if you use a word like enlightenment, for example, boy, I don't know. To me, that's like I don't know what it is, but I'm here, and it's way out there. Enlightenment, you know. But if I just change the language a little, we can. So enlightenment, I don't know. But I do know that we can all come to more, just say more, a little more awakening, freedom, a little more place of a real sense of that inner well-being. That's possible. And so then we don't have to start looking like the pathway down there. We can just be here and start and starting to notice the places where we're identified or hooked or caught in that carving out some separate little um, image of what we think we are and everything that keeps us separated out from something much more profound. And as the letting go of the clinging around that happens, then something else naturally is known and seen. And we and just as simple like that. That's what I would say. So I don't know. That's kind of best I know to respond. I know we have to end, but you you had one thing, and then we're going to need to end. Yeah. Um. I've been reading this uh, book by Thich Nhat Hanh in the heart of the Buddhist teaching. And in it, he talks about how if you're not getting joy out of your meditation, that you're not doing it properly. And um, that kind of bothered me because I would say that I get insight, concentration. You know, it's beneficial, but I wouldn't say that I get joy. And I was just wondering what your take on that was. Well, I'm happy to give you my take. Of course, Thich Nhat Hanh is, I want to be careful because, you know, he's he's a famous whatever and I'm, you know, but but having said that, yeah, I'm going to, I'll throw out my opinion. And uh, my opinion is that he's coming from a particular perspective and a particular style of teaching 
that I think can be very useful. And, you know, that place of joy, um, I don't know how he's using the term, but it may be finding the ease of being in the midst of even the difficulty. So it, I don't know exactly what he's referring to, but it may be that when he's talking about finding the joy, it's just like, once again, it's not, it's not having a joy that's dependent on having or not having any particular experience, but more of the, what, how, what's the relationship with just right now? And when we can sort of drop deep, more deeply in just to the moment, even, even with like right now my hip's kind of aching, right? Well, okay, you know, it's just like, it's, okay, it's unpleasant, aching, you know, but you can still have that, that ease of being there. That may be what he's talking about, but I'm not sure. Having said that, also, I don't happen to, to, to use that kind of language. I happen to use just a different kind of language. And the way I would tend to say it is, is that um, sometimes our Dharma practice um, is filled with joy and as a matter of fact, that was actually the topic of the... It's on joy. <laughs> but we just didn't get there. But, you know, sometimes... Um, there is a lot of joy that comes. And some of these meditative states are, um, are, are um, just incredibly profound and inspiring. And those are real. And the Buddha talked about those a lot. And look, we don't want to diminish those. They're a big deal. We don't want to make them more than they are because that's not what it's about. Because they are also impermanent and they come and go. But, you know, there's a lot that can be seen in some of those. But also there's times when we're in hell. And you're exactly right. It's not joyful and everything. And so that's the practice then. So I think it would be disrespectful for me to then to say, we should be finding the joy while, you know, all the, the hell is coming up. And so I wouldn't tend to speak like that. And just to know that, you know what? Sometimes this is hard. Just to sit here and be present with ourselves can be so hard. <laughs> it ain't joyful. And sometimes... And so all of this is just coming and going. The ups, the downs, the joy, the, 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 the terror, the despair, the inspiration. And so we're finding that place um, as Ajahn Chah, who is often quoted, and it's this wonderful quote. It's actually a good place to end. Um, some of you have heard this many times where he said, this is exactly what he's talking about when he says, uh, make, make yourself like a clear forest pool. And then he says, many rare and wonderful animals will come to drink. In other words, all kinds of experiences are going to come and go. But you and you will be still and you'll see it all. That's what he's talking about. Well, anyway, um, so we've actually gone over, it's just a few minutes over nine o'clock. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take two minutes to, to end, but I also want to say and I apologize because I do want to be respectful of the time. Some of you may really need to leave right at nine. We're only going to go for two minutes for those who can stay. If you need to leave, please don't feel weird about it. You know, just, you know, please, you know, take care of yourself and go because I acknowledge that we went over. Okay. All right. So, um, oh, thank you. So to end, um, we can just do just a short two-minute um, sharing of merit. And to do that, um, I would just invite you to you know, get as comfortable as your body will allow, whatever that is for you. And then 
sometimes when there's discussions, there's a talk, there can be a tendency for the mind to go out of ourselves, out into the room or into the discussion or up into our heads. And if that's happened, just bring your awareness back inside, connecting back to your own experience. So using the body, you know, just like, what is the experience in the body? In the heart, the mind, just, just coming inside, connecting with the whole range of whatever's happening there. There may not be much, or you may have some things that came up perhaps in the talk, or maybe things that you've come in this evening with that are from your, from your life that are stirring around. But just to see what, what is the experience in this moment. And I would invite you to notice not only the experience, but how are, you, how are you being with that experience, or how are you holding it, or what's your relationship with that experience? And to see if there can be a sense of, of allowing, just allowing yourself to be like this right now. If there's a place of struggle, see if there might be a softening around that or a place that can let go a little. And if there's something in experience that's challenging that you can't let go around, or then, then to have some acceptance for that place. To know, oh yeah, this is, this is more challenging and that, that you can't really let go around that. And then to bring some kindness right into there. And then I invite you to reflect that um, we have all used our time wisely together this evening. That we could have done anything this evening, but we chose to come here to practice, to meditate, learning about quieting the mind, opening the heart, and to um, reflect on Dharma teachings. And so that any time we do that, it is of great benefit to ourselves. And also it's of great benefit to others, to those around us. And in fact, it's not possible to practice for ourselves alone. That any time we, we uh, cultivate these Dharma qualities in ourselves, of course it will affect th- those around us. And so we can make that more conscious and offer up if there's been any um, goodness or any merit that's been obtained or generated this evening by our time together, let us offer it up for the benefit and liberation of all beings. Wishing may all beings be happy and peaceful and may all beings come to an end of suffering. So thank you all uh, very much and I hope you have a good evening.